Romans 12, again, last week we read verses 1 and 2, and they put us on notice that Jesus' people must be present to God with their whole selves, with their bodies, which are a living sacrifice, but they need to be removed from this age in their minds, which are being renewed. So living sacrifice, verse 1, renewed mind, verse 2. Verses 1 and 2 are about having a body and mind holistic faith. But how do those verses translate? And I'm not talking about translating Greek into English, but about translating Scripture into life, which is the only version that God's authorized. We can quote Romans 12, 1 and 2, many of us, but can we live it? And if we can, how do we live it? The answer comes, this makes sense, right? In verses 3 through 8. Verses 1 and 2 lead right into, intentionally, verses 3 through 8, where the body-mind holistic faith of those first two verses is lived out in the church. One of the persistent misconceptions in Christianity has been the idea that a person can somehow succeed in the Christian life without the church. That's like saying the left tackle can succeed as a football player without the rest of the team. Without a team, what's a left tackle? He's irrelevant. His efforts are pointless. We often hear people talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And it's right to speak that way, but just because a relationship with Jesus must be personal, don't jump to the conclusion that it's therefore private. John Wesley didn't mince words. He was right. The Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. Romans 12, 3 through 8 is about how you do Romans 12, 1 and 2. How you do it in real time. Let's read those verses, 3 through 8. Paul writes, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. By the way, that's a, uh, there's a great old-time scholar, C.B. Granfield, who says there are something like 72 different possibilities for translating that verse. Ouch. We'll talk about a couple of those and go deep on Wednesday night. We're not going to have time to do that today. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. So if a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. The four that begins verse 3 reminds us that this section is connected to verses 1 and 2. It fleshes out what it means to present your body to God as a living sacrifice while being renewed in your mind. I've known many Christians over the years who can quote verses 1 and 2 word perfect, but have no idea what comes next in verses 3 through 8. And that's sad because 3 through 8 
are the inspired application of one and two. We present our bodies, we're renewed in our minds as we serve and bless others in God's church, the body of Christ. Now, this section can be summed up under four headings. Grace, that's the beginning of verse 3. Humility, that's the rest of verse 3. Unity and diversity, that's verses 4 and 5. And ministry, that's verses 6 through 8. So grace, humility, unity and diversity, ministry. First grace. Paul says, it's by the grace given me, I say to every one of you. What motivates Paul in his encounter with others and provides him with something worthwhile to give them is grace. In another place, Paul speaks about God's grace that was given to me for you. That's Ephesians chapter 3. God's grace that was given to me for you. To me, but for you. It often happens that when God wants to give his grace to one person, he sends it through another. Now, why does he do that? Isn't it inefficient to use a middleman? It might be if God was only trying to get something done. But if that were the case, why use people at all? It would be much more efficient to do it himself. But God is determined that his people will not only love and depend on him, but that they will love and depend on each other. Don't forget what Jesus is doing. Don't forget what he's up to. He's building his church. That's Matthew 16, 18. You thought he was using his church to get important things done in the world, as if that was his priority. But that's not the whole picture. I mean, if it is the whole picture, the picture is upside down and backwards. He is not so much using his church to get things done. He's using things that need to be done to build his church. He loves his church. The church is of the utmost importance to him. You thought it was politics. No, no, no. You thought it was charity. No, it's his church. He loves his church and he's doing something with it and in it. And so God gives the grace meant for you. He gives that to Tom. And the grace for Tom, he gives to Jen. And the grace for Jen, he gives to Aaron. And this isn't some kind of mix-up in the heavenly post office. He intends us to deliver his grace to each other. To be, as Dan Hefner's put it, grace dispensers. Now, the rest of verse 3 falls under the next heading, which is humility. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. This plan that God has for building his church, it works when there is humility. Now, have you noticed how much people talk about humility these days? It wasn't this way when I was a kid, but it's this way now. My son pointed this out to me a while ago, and I hadn't really noticed. Nowadays, it's incumbent upon people receiving awards to tell everyone that they're humble. You know, the same guy who dances around the end zone, pounding his chest and trash-talking his opponents, he steps behind a microphone and says, I'm so humble to receive this recognition from my peers. You know, humility ain't what it used to be. 
But humility is necessary to the proper functioning of the body of Christ. A lack of humility will lead one person to think he needs to do everything himself, even though others could do some of it far more effectively than he can. A lack of humility will prevent another person from accepting the grace that God sends through a fellow Christian or hinder someone from passing it on. This humility, verse 3 talks about, and this is important to get, this is the expression of the renewed mind in verse 2. And that renewal takes place in the give-and-take life of the church. The connection between the two is obvious in the original language. In verse 2, Paul tells us to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And then immediately in verse 3, he uses the unparalleled in the New Testament repetition of the Greek word for to think. A literal translation of verse th- that second part of verse 3 would go like this. Do not above think. It's a word Paul probably made up. Do not above think beyond what it behooves you to think, what you must think, but think in a way that leads to wise thinking. This is the renewal of the mind. And what it means is that the renewal of your mind happens as you serve, not just as you think. See, you will never experience the mind renewal of verse 2 and the peace and the purpose and the joy that come with it just by reading a book. Not even by reading the book. That's not the way our minds work. It's not the way God designed us. The renewal of the mind is always coupled to the service of the body. We are not giant brains in a jar. God didn't make us that way. We are body and mind people. And the mind is renewed while the body serves. Just as your car battery is recharged while you drive. If your car sits too long, the power will drain. The same is true of you and me. We sit too long, we drain. We cannot not serve and still somehow be renewed and transformed. The next heading, the one that sums up verses 4, 5, and the beginning of 6, is unity and diversity. God put us in a body, so he made us a certain way, he knew that, and he put us in a body, the church, for our good and the good of others. When you're a living sacrifice that's being renewed in your mind, the unity of the church will cheer you and its diversity will sharpen you. When you have not presented your body to God as a living sacrifice and your mind is not being renewed, the church's unity will bore you and its diversity will drive you up a wall. The diversity in the Roman church was a big challenge to them. We've seen this before as we've gone through the letter. The Jewish Christians who had recently come back to Rome after being expelled, they came back to their church and they felt lost. They felt isolated. And the Gentile Christians felt judged. One wanted more Torah. The other wanted less. One wanted greater relevance. The other was worried about forgetting tradition. And you know what? Things haven't changed very much in the last two millennia. It's always still the same way in whatever church you you attend. But I want you to see what's happening here. God put these people together, Jews and Gentiles, just like he put us together, 
and he made them dependent upon each other for his grace. He put them in a situation where they could only be fulfilled individually as they worked together collectively. Situation hasn't changed. The church still needs you, and you need the church. And if you think you don't need the church, you're thinking too highly of yourself, verse 3. If for nothing else, you need the church to take the grace that you have that comes through your gifts. You're, and I know this isn't a very complimentary analogy, but you're like a cow that not only has milk to give, but that needs to be milked. And if you're familiar with dairy farms, you'll know what I'm talking about. The church needs you. And what God wants to give through you. God set all this up in such a way that we all have something that someone else needs, but none of us has everything that he or she needs. We have different gifts, verse 6, according to the grace given us. Remember verse 3, three. there Paul said that he speaks by the grace given him. Someone else might care for people in need by the grace given them. Work at Family Promise, for example. Someone else might visit shut-ins or send cards or urge skeptics to consider the faith or make meals or organize ministries or handle money by the grace given them. Everyone has a gift. That's Ephesians 4.7. Everyone who belongs to Christ has a gift. But not everyone uses their gift. Some people excuse themselves by saying they don't have anything to give. Oh, I just, I can't do anything. You know, that might seem like humility, but it's not. It's dereliction of duty. It's irresponsible. We must not only avoid thinking too highly of ourselves, we must avoid thinking too lowly of ourselves and of the God who made us. The church needs your gifts and the grace God has given you. His intention for the church is not for a pastor or elders or a ministry staff to do the work while the congregation reaps the benefit. The biblical picture is of all of us working with the gifts and grace God has given us. God called every member without exception to play a part. Every member to do works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. That's the biblical picture. Now, Paul uses the human body, which is one of his all-time favorite illustrations, to make this clear. You know, your body has trillions of cells in it. Just, in, in the universe, see, this is interesting thought. In the universe, you are about the median size of all things that exist. And your cells are at the small end of that spectrum, and the stars are at the big end of that spectrum. And you're right in between. There are about as many cells in your body as there are stars in the sky, which is pretty fascinating. You have trillions of cells in your body, which are the building blocks of your bones, your muscles, your organs, and your brain. Your brain alone has 100 billion neurons, and yet it only weighs about three pounds, if you're a man. If you're a woman, about two and a half pounds. And I did not make that up. 
men have bigger brains than women, okay? I'm just saying, you know. I didn't make this up. Of course, it's not how big your brain is, right? But what it can do, that's what matters. A Ferrari is only three quarters of the size of my van. I'm just saying. Human body is the most efficient organizational system on Earth, maybe in the universe. It has about 200 different types of cells. And each one has a specific job to do, but all serving the one body. Every cell has something to contribute. Not one is just a bystander. But if one of those cells begins to live for itself rather than for the body, if it takes but doesn't give, if it uses the body's resources without giving any service in return, the body becomes less efficient and may may even become diseased. And so it is in the body of Christ. There are no bystanders. Everyone has something to contribute. Now, I know that some of you hearing that will think, well, not me. Or, you know, maybe once upon a time, but these days it takes all I have just to get to worship services. It's true that roles change, but you have something to contribute. Every one of us has a ministry. And ministry is the heading that sums up that final section in verses 6 through 8. If you read Paul's letters, you'll realize that he often sends lists like this to different churches, lists of spiritual gifts. But if you look closely, you realize that no two of them are alike. And that tells us something. It tells us that Paul isn't trying to be exhaustive when he pens these lists, but representative. And it tells us that he's trying to make a point here. Whether or not you have a gift is not up to you if you're a believer in Jesus. If you belong to Jesus, you have been entrusted with a gift by God to use for the sake of Christ's body. That's not up to you. What is up to you is how you use that gift. Now, you can rob the church by acting like you don't have one. Or you can rub your gift in the church's face by acting like yours is the only one that matters. Or you can deliver God's grace to the church in a timely and humble way. But giftedness is not the only thing in play here. It's not even the most important one. Character is in play here. And that's why Paul, in a similar list that he sent to the enormously gifted Corinthian church, urged them to seek the gifts that build up the body of Christ, but then added, and now I'll show you the most excellent way. The most excellent way is not a matter of gifts, but a matter of how gifts are used. It's the way of love. So whatever your gift, its effectiveness will depend on at least three things. Whether it flows out of faith, that's verse 6. Whether it's expressed in a matching ministry, that's verse 7. Oftentimes people's gifts in their ministry don't match. And whether it has the quality character behind it that's necessary to back it up. That's verse 8. Character has priority over talent. 
the fruit of the Spirit has priority over the gifts of the Spirit. Gifted people who have not presented their bodies as living sacrifices and are not in the process of being renewed in their minds can bring harm to the church, not by their gifts, but by the way they use them. All right, so let's bring this to Coldwater. Let's bring this to 202 East Lockwood Road. Let's translate it into life, which is God's authorized version. If you have faith in Jesus, if you tell me, yes, I have trusted Jesus as my Savior and Lord, then God has given you a gift to use on a regular basis for the benefit of the church that he loves. Not to use it as dereliction of duty. God knows that Lockwood Church can do great things, can change the community and the country and the world for the kingdom of God if we all use the gifts he gave us for the church. And there is no gift of bystanding. But we can't do great things, or more importantly, become a great church, because remember, God loves the church. If only a select few use their gifts. When I first entered pastoral ministry, it was in a church where uh, the district had almost given up on the church. I was part of a denomination. And on an average Sunday, 19 people showed up. I included Karen and me. I was preacher, Sunday school teacher, hospital visitor, funeral officiant, occasional song leader, and I think I even came off the platform once or twice to take the offering. I drove a car full of old ladies to church every Sunday. I shoveled the snow, mowed the grass, fixed the furnace, patched the roof, cut down trees. Karen and I and a couple other people did all the work of the church in those first years. That's not the way God designed the church to be, and thankfully it's not the way LCC has been. But we can improve. I've read that in the 1950s, an IndyCar pit crew consisted of four people, and one of those four people was the driver. A routine pit stop to replace two tires and fill the tank took over just over 60 seconds. Now, you think about that, four people, one of them the driver, that's pretty impressive. But compare that to today. A crew consists of 11 members, excluding the driver, and can replace all four tires, adjust the wings, top off the tank in less than eight seconds. I can't tie my shoes in less than eight seconds. Everyone has a role to play, some at the car, some behind the wall, and everyone understands his role. God intends the church to be like that. Now, Lockwood's done an outstanding job in the past, but there's room for improvement. If you're not working, it's time to join the crew. If you don't know what you can do, then find out. You start by praying about it. God, what do you want me to do? How do I fit? What, what have you given me to give to others? And then ask me or an elder or a deacon or a staff person. There are a hundred of opportunities that we know about, and, and maybe... God's introducing a new one through his gift in you. The church needs you, but you also need to be serving. It is absolutely essential to your spiritual health and well-being. You cannot present your body a living sacrifice and be renewed in your mind and be isolated from the church. Use the gift God has given you. You know, this Christmas, tens of millions of people buy tens of billions of dollars in gift cards to friends and family. Gift cards 20 years ago weren't hardly sold at all. And now tens of billions of dollars will be sold just this Christmas. And if this year is like past years, 
Millions of people won't use their cards. The Journal of State Taxation estimates the typical American home has $300 worth of gift cards lying around unused. Last year alone, that amounted to about a billion dollars that went unspent. And the reason the Journal of Taxation is interested in that, of course, is because states want bad tax money. They want you to spend your cards. Now, here's the thing. When God gives a gift, he expects his family to use it. Don't let God's gift to us, through you, go unused. And if you're still thinking, yeah, but I can't do anything special, or I've got some things in my life that I need to work out first, and after that, you know, maybe, then I want to read this reminder to you from John Piper. He said, the difference between Uncle Sam and Jesus Christ is that Uncle Sam won't enlist you unless you're healthy, and Jesus won't enlist, enlist you unless you're sick. What's God looking for in the world? Assistance? No, the gospel's not a help-wanted ad. It's a help-available ad. God is not looking for people to work for him, but people who let him work mightily in and through them. In other words, people who present their bodies as living sacrifices. Be one of those people. Use your gift. If you don't know what it is, find out. All right, let's pray together. God, we know that your love for the church comes out of who you are and your love for your son not because we do things right or we're indispensable or anything like that. May your love for this church cause us to be pleasing to you in what we do and what we think, especially how we love. Lord, I pray for those people who have thought, I've got nothing to give. I know that's, that is a lie straight from the pit. But it's a powerful one, and I pray that you will change that. Renew our thinking. Use us for your glory inside the walls of these buildings, but outside where we're at all week long. And use us. Use us for the sake of your son, Jesus, in whom we pray.